Profit Lowdown. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Priya Wong. In this podcast, I recommend a book, tool, tip, podcast, or resource that has helped me to build a multi-million dollar nonprofit organization. I've done the research, so you don't have to. Let's get started. Hey, podcast listeners. I'm Ria Wong, which means this is Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, I am here with my friend, Judy Pryor-Ramirez. She is a social justice educator and independent consultant who's had a long history in the nonprofit sector. And today, we are going to talk all about hiring, which I know is a big pain point for lots of folks. So welcome, Judy. Thank you, Ria. It's great to be here. Great to have you. So Judy, tell me a little bit about yourself and your path. So I like to describe my path to leadership and and my work in hiring as circuitous. I am a first generation college graduate and graduate school graduate. So a pathway to my career was not something that I saw in my immediate family and, and in my community. And so I did a lot of work, particularly in college and graduate school, to network and connect with other uh, women of color leaders, particularly, and to just really be sort of an anthropologist and really study and watch others doing their work. I knew from an early age that I wanted to be involved in change work. I knew I wanted to do work that was inspired by social justice. I knew that I wanted to, in my sort of eight, nine-year-old eyes, um, do work that would set history, sort of set the record straight on history with respect to oppression. My father uh, was born in 1944. He was a Black man from Virginia. He went to segregated public schools and really experienced sort of as Jim Crow in that period at that time, the South was coming to an end, all of the the oppression and repression of Black folks at that time. And so I, I come from that history of struggle and resistance of Black people in the South. On my father's side, I learned actually at his memorial service that he was one of four men who integrated his union. So I'm also the daughter of a union member. And so the notion of struggle, the notion of fighting for your rights was very alive and well in my growing up, watching my father go on strike, being on furlough as they were demanding for better benefits, better pay, and most importantly to know that I'm part of a legacy of integration right, that he was part of what it meant to integrate his union. On my mother's side, she is a first-generation Mexican-American from the Tex-Mex borderlands. She was born in Corpus Christi, Texas, home of Selena Quintanilla. (laughs) And so I I have this really rich history, right, both on my mom's side being an understanding what it means to be Mexican, Mexican-American, what it means to carry the roots of that family into my own family, into my professional journey. On her side, very quickly, she was a child of laborers and migrant farm workers, and she spent some time in her childhood, in much of her childhood, spending summers picking oranges, strawberries, cotton in Texas and in California. And so um, very much I'm a child of, of labor on that side as well. And so that analysis, and though it wasn't as clear, right, that sociological imagination wasn't quite cultivated until I got into college and graduate school, it definitely set the groundwork, I'd say, for the mission and the work that I, I want to do for my people and for communities of color, oppressed people. And so it led me to graduate school to focus on sociology and education, moved to New York in 2003 to attend Teachers College to really think about the role that school and education and learning spaces play and perpetuating oppression, perpetuating segregation, and what are forms of histories of resistance and struggle that we can draw upon as we think about new reforms and ways to, to transform schools and society ultimately. So that's what sort of brought me to the work from that angle. 
but I think what I'd say, what keeps me in the work is my love for learning and my love for people and bringing good people to work together. Yeah, that's beautiful. So that's a really nice way to thread the needle because I think so often when we think about DEI work and we think about how do we bring diverse folks both into the workplace, but also support them as they develop as professionals and leaders, that seems to to integrate really nicely into what drives you. So tell me a little bit about, you've been an educator and you've also been in positions of sort of administration where you've had to hire people. And you, it struck me when we first talked, you're like, I love hiring, which I know a lot of people would rather poke out their eyes with rusty needles. So tell me what <laughs> What is it about hiring that you love? I've been hiring for about the past 12 years or so. I'll just back up and say that currently as an independent consultant for nonprofit organizations and higher education institutions, I work mostly with progressive organizations and projects that are tackling issues of race, class, and gender. So DEI would fit in that. And how, most importantly, how these power dynamics around privilege and identity show up in organizations and how people strive to live into those things that manifest in a mission and values. I also see myself as when I'm sort of turning and playing with this idea, so bear with me, a leadership doula, a companion of sorts to women of color leaders as they're walking through navigating their professional journeys. And many of those systems that we operate in, particularly as women of color, weren't designed for us specifically in these leadership positions. So that's some of the work that I'm doing now. And so in the past, that's looked like I've been an executive director, I've been a program director, a program manager, an executive assistant. And I got my start in change work and in in working around these issues as a policy analyst for New York City Council. And so that's really where I cut my teeth in organizing and holding uh, holding government accountable along with community folks. And so in these past 12 years as a hiring manager, I've hired full-time staff, part-time staff, contract or consultant employees, and often really small and mighty teams. And so I really, and in that vein of small and mighty teams, I've had to become a one-stop HR shop. And so in that, that's where I sort of learned to love hiring because when you're small and mighty, the people that you bring on are essential. And it's crucial that with lean budgets, a limited amount of staff power, then making the choice of who you're going to hire becomes even more so paramount. And so I've really prioritized a kind of process and one that I try and bring a lot of compassion to. And I'll talk a little bit about why I think about compassion and dignity in the hiring process, because it can often be so scary for people. Particularly, mm-hmm. I think of myself as someone who's first-gen college, that you know the professional world was something I had to learn, learn with my sisters and for us to figure out for our family. And so I really think if we can do some work on the front end as hiring folks to make that experience less intense and to bring some generosity to the hiring process, because then you, you really get the responses and you really folks open up in a way that that it allays any nerves and calms folks down and enables them to really begin to see themselves in the role of the work. So that's that's why I love hiring because I think it's an opportunity to one get to know people, to craft a process and I learn a lot about myself in that process and designing hiring processes. I think about what does the job description look like? How are we recruiting and sourcing candidates? What does referrals and accepting referrals look like? How are you crafting the search committee and the folks who come together to do the interviews? And then what does that day look like? Are we wearing ourselves out? Are we wearing the candidates out? And then how are we closing the loop? And what does it look like to thank those who came and spent their time? And what does it look like to then really 
tight with a nice bow and welcome your new person to the team and invite others in to celebrate the new person who's joining. So those are some things I think about in the hiring process. Yeah, that really resonates with me because, you know, having done a lot of hiring myself, it's something I've thought about, but also certainly I've also applied for jobs as well. And it's kind of remarkable how poorly people can be treated everything from never getting a response back about anything to going in for an interview and then hearing nothing. I mean, it just, it feels a little bit like I'm not in the dating scene, but apparently the kids are talking about ghosting. (laughs) Yes. It's been a minute since I've been dating, but you know, there, there is that aspect of recognizing the humanity of the people who are applying for a job. So talk to me about, here on Nonprofit Lowdown, we try to give people some actionable, tactical things that they can do. So when we start to think about the beginning of the hiring process and wanting to really introduce a a diverse pipeline of candidates, what do we do? Like, how are we sourcing people to ensure that we have a diverse pipeline? Mm -hmm. Before I even get to the sourcing and recruitment, I start with an assessment step, and perhaps that's the policy analyst in me, but I'd like to take a moment to reflect on the current work and where we might be poised to grow. And so that might look like revising the job description. I'm not the kind of person that automatically just posts the job description. I want to think very deeply and carefully about what is our current need now? And what does the job description need to look like and read like in order to attract, right, to attract the folks who can see themselves in this work? And so that I feel like the, my best hires have come from that deliberation first and that assessment. And then um, one of the let things me, about, let, me pause, let me pause you there. What are some of the tips and tricks there? Because, I mean, I think job descriptions obviously are the first step that anybody might take to figure out whether or not they would want to apply. And, and I think you're right, which we so we it's an opportunity to build a relationship and a brand. And I'm just wondering what takeaways have you learned from crafting job descriptions in a thoughtful way? Mm-hmm. So as Brene Brown writes in her book, Dare to Lead, and she's probably paraphrasing from someone else because I've heard this before, but clear is kind. Really the kind of clarity, being choosy with words. I use all action verbs in describing the nature of duties and responsibilities. I always provide a little context for the office or the unit's work some goals that the, the unit might have. Then I go on, go into then describing the major buckets or areas of work that this person might oversee and really think about that kind of portfolio and then scaffold duties and responsibilities under those major areas of work. In terms of thinking about hiring with the either DEI lens or however folks are framing that, that point with respect to hiring, I've learned from a couple of folks in social justice education spaces to really think about that statement when naming or prioritizing or quite frankly, what I might say, centering underrepresented groups. So here's an example that I pulled from a colleague I respect very well from an organization I work with. And this is how they frame it. And just listen to the words as opposed to the kinds of statements you might see that we value diversity at this organization and welcome all folks from different backgrounds to apply. That's what you often see, something along those lines. Here's what she writes. We encourage people from underrepresented backgrounds to apply, particularly people of color, those who are first in their family to attend college, people who identify as LGBTQ, documented individuals, and people from low-income backgrounds. Just thinking about framing, right? You hear the language, you hear the attention, and the specificity with which she is calling out 
in naming what it means to do a very deliberate hire for quote unquote diversity, right? Diversity needs a lot of things to different people. But here in the statement, we're hearing first in your family, LGBTQ, documented, low income, we're addressing class, we're addressing nationality, immigration status, we're addressing gender and sexuality, and we're addressing education and credentials, right? And, and what happens in those spaces. And so I really love this framing because I think it creates an invitation for folks who may not see themselves in some of these places, but to see this labeled and put out front and named, I think that's an invitation for people of color or for people of color who, who could see themselves within this statement. That's a really good tip. So a couple other follow-up questions with respect to the JD. I've heard a lot of people go back and forth about compensation information. And what drives me crazy is, you know, compensation commensurate with experience or even worse, you know, email us your salary requirements because I actually think that's a very unfair, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially for first-gen folks who may mm-hmm. not know what that might mean or what the scale would be. So what are your feelings about posting compensation on the JD? I'm with you 100%. I think the vague language is not clear and it's not kind. And so what I do is if I'm able to, I list a range. And in some institutions I've worked at, uh, particularly private ones, it's not listed. But what I do then as I am if folks email me, I respond and I, and I share the range. I, I'm very transparent in my hiring process. And so what I like to do is answer questions as they come in and try to do that as best as I can. The second thing is, is when I'm interviewing the screening calls, as they call it, the first maybe top 10 or 15 folks, one of the first questions I ask is, this is our budget for the, this position. This is the range we can offer. Is this something you that you can work with or or does this work for you and so i name it right up front there but more often than not i've been able to list the range and be very clear because i don't i wouldn't want to waste anyone's time and i think it's much you'll get candidates who are much more likely or fit because they're able to really see whether the responsibilities and duties required really match their skill set and can also determine if this is a livable range for them salary for them and in a place like new york city we really need to be clear, in my opinion. The cost of living here is is very high. And so the fact that we can name how much you would expect for the salary, that to me feels like being clear is being kind. Last question about the JD. So to your point, I think there's a lot of value in being explicit about duties, responsibilities, and the culture of the organization and so forth. And how do you balance that with brevity because we also know I mean I've seen like three page four page JDs and basically my brain just shuts off I'm like nope can't even can't even look at that yeah <laughs> I've definitely seen those especially as the position is has increasing sort of responsibilities right you might be part of the senior leadership I try not to go more than two pages and really try to be concise again this is part of sort of the choosiness picking your words, explaining the work. There's always the clever, these are the duties and responsibilities, you know, lim- uh, not including, oh, I'm forgetting the language, but the framing. Duties as assigned. Duties that other duties as assigned. There it is, yeah. that one. And it's in the interviewing process that you can also share more. But I think what's most important for me is like, I want folks to walk away with understanding where are the major areas of work? What am I doing? Mm-hmm. Communications, 
what parts of the programs, because then those folks can go to the website and then scroll and search and find out, oh, this is what this program is about, that they're referencing, Um, trying to do a lot of clarifying the major areas of work along with as, as many of the possible duties and responsibilities. But I think within the changing nature of organizational priorities, institutional ones, if an organization is part of a larger institution, that, you know, other duties as assigned is always, you know, a reality because work can shift and change. And I think some of the things that I'm also most excited about with the other duties as assigned is creating, at least in my leadership and management practice of staff, is inviting folks to name and identify other bodies of work or projects that they would like to work on. As they come into the seat and become the experts of that work, they can name and tell me. And that's where work shifts, job descriptions shift, because they're able to see they're working more closely with program participants. And they're able to say, hey, actually, I think this is where I need to spend X percentage amount of my time on this particular project. Students are saying this is a need or in the case of university faculty are naming this. So I'm someone who sees the job description as a living and breathable document, one that can be revised, one that can be a source of reference, but also being really real and not so rigid about this is the only thing. Yeah. One other thing I wanted to add to that is I think that a lot of organizations and companies miss an opportunity to put their brand personality into the JD. So in general, JDs read sort of bland and sort of generic. And I think that there's nothing worse than being generic to a potential employee because they're joining, presumably joining your company because they appreciate your culture, your personality, what you do in the world. And so to my mind, every single piece that you put out there should represent that personality. Last question about that, which is, are there any examples of, you know, implicit bias or race, unconscious race-based language that are in JDs that we should be aware of? So let me give you a little bit of context to that. So I've been doing a lot of thinking about sort of gender-based words that might Mm -hmm. imply to somebody that what the nature of the work is. Uh Uh So, you know, active verbs versus more like collaborative, nurturing, which are stereotypically feminine. And I'm just wondering if you feel like there is an equivalent in sort of a, through a racial context. Hmm. That's a really great question. I don't know that I've thought about it from that frame. I mean, I think one thing that I've done was, uh, I think some job descriptions I've seen in the past will say she or he, or sometimes just he, I will substitute and just say the candidate or the applicant or the incumbent and replace with they pronouns. So that's just from like a, from a language on the document. I think there could be some implicit bias, particularly around the credentials part of a job description. I think that could be a place where we might want to be paying attention to education requirements. I know in some cases, you know, you see the equivalent experience, life experience, maybe really naming experience as I think I've seen in some job descriptions before where folks who might be past program participants or have been in the community or part of the community that an organization might be serving can be a preferred qualification. And that flips it for more of an affirmative perspective and thinking, what does it look like? to recruit and source candidates that would that are part of the community that an organization might be serving. 
is, is something that I'm thinking about that perhaps might be a response to the kinds of implicit and racial biases that might exist in others' job descriptions or ways folks are framing things. Got it. So let's move on to sourcing and recruiting, because I think this is a, is a hot, juicy topic. A lot of folks, it seems like the narrative is that it's hard to find folks of color, particularly sort of at the C-suite level. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts and tactics around how we make sure that we are recruiting broadly and widely such that we are ensuring a diverse candidate pool. I'll be frank, most of my hiring and recruiting has been with entry-level and mid-level managers. And so the way that I've worked that or have managed my recruiting and sourcing has really been through my own social network and social networks of others. I think serving most importantly as a mentor and sponsor to a number of young professionals over the the several many years has kept me connected to what I call sort of the next generation of leaders. And they have been a really tremendous source of getting the word out about different roles. And I I really think the the work of quite frankly establishing authentic relationships with people and really thinking for me what it looks like that when I meet someone in whatever capacity or context, many times I'm thinking about what, how, what this relationship might be or how, you know, how this relationship could inform some of the work that I'm doing. And I think being an op- I'm, an, I'm a person who tries to stay open to relationships and people that I meet. I, I'm, I really get a lot of energy as an extrovert from meeting other people. And so I really think that building relationships at multiple levels with folks across generations is an important way to just have what some folks I've heard say is sort of a bench of candidates. Um, that's something that a colleague who was an ED mentioned to me that she was sort of always sort of watching, getting to know, and was a strategy for her. So if a position became vacant, she had within a pool of folks that she had been cultivating whether or not it was an exact position that existed in that moment or the position might have shifted, but she was really keen in that way to be thinking about how are you building a group of folks who then are connected to other folks and really thinking, she taught me the language around weak ties and cold ties and warm ties rather, and how we are always just a link away from another person or individual that could be connected back to your organization. And so I think a lot about social network in that way and sort of network theory and the way that you can utilize your network, whether it's an online network or in-person network to leverage candidates for your pool. So for me, I, I deeply believe in the, in the people, the people relationship and that, that it's a lot of work. It takes time. It takes patience. It takes creativity it takes willingness to to work across difference and meet people who may be incredibly different for you from you. And one of the things, because I've held roles that have had a large community engagement, community relations component, um, I've learned to sort of be a bridge builder and be thinking to connect dots. And so that is a skill set that I think hiring managers can benefit from is just spending five to ten percent of your total work time in that relationship building, that'll be a huge asset as you think about roles for within your unit, other units, 
and being being a person who's able to share connections and opportunities across networks. Yeah, I think that's really important what you say, Judy. I think one of the most important jobs of any CEO ED is to be able to attract talent and to develop a bench because I think too often what happens is there's a high-level vacancy and then you end up scrambling to find somebody and you know it goes vacant, which means everyone else has to pick up the slack or you end up freaking out and hiring the wrong person. So both of those things are suboptimal. So let's let's pull back a little bit and get a little bit more meta. Talk to me about how you structure a hiring process so that you keep DEI at the center of the work. So I think one of the things around a hiring process that I keep in mind in addition to assessing need, thinking about the job description, the language we use, I also think about who are the folks will, that, that the, the candidates will meet. Who's on the search committee? Who's who? How am I structuring the the search or the interview process? I think it's easy to sort of move into default mode. One of the things I challenge myself to do is to invite folks who are from outside of my unit, or sometimes even outside of the organization, who might be partners, to invite them to spend some time on this committee to help us identify talent for for said position that's open. And there you can get diversity on your search committee or on your hiring team, which I think is another lens and way to look at DEI. Who are the people in the room helping to make the decision? So it's not just DEI in the sense of are we sourcing and recruiting diverse talent, but we're also, we're bringing the equity to the table around decision-making and the folks who have the influence. And those folks also end up being wonderful referrals and inviting candidates and and applicants to apply when you have a a more creative search committee or, or hiring group. In addition to that, I think a lot about creating clarity and spaciousness in the actual process for both the candidate and the committee. I know for committee members, they're giving their time. It's labor to read applications and cover letters and to be a part of it. So as much that I can front load deadlines, expectations, when we'll be meeting and not scheduling too aggressively, but really when I'm hiring, particularly when I'm on a lean team and I don't have a lot of staff, I really sort of take a moment to go slow to go fast using that sort of adage that work will need to sort of take up the the sort of work, the day-to-day, right? Work will sort of take a slower cadence in order for me to hire the best talent. And so I know that I I share that out with leadership and make sure that I have their buy-in, that my priority in this moment will be a stellar hire. And so that has been super helpful in creating the kind of abundance of time and generosity of time that you need to do a search well. The search process on a hiring manager, on a hiring committee can be exhausting. I think I have found, I've been on search committees where it, it feels tense, it feels nerve-wracking, it feels last minute, and that's one of the, that's the last thing I want a candidate to feel is that kind of energy. And so thinking about, again, that kind of compassion to the process. And I think, quite frankly, when I think about the habits of white supremacy, which it's a frame that uh, has been used by a couple of scholars in, in naming habits in the workplace that start or are from a source of white supremacy culture, the sense of urgency, 
the, the, the sense around having everything written, the sense of using only text to, to, to understand. So really kind of taking a, an approach that is anti-oppressive in the search process is one that I bring to my work too, that I think also kind of hits on diversity, equity, inclusion, but really goes a level deeper to think about what are the systems and the practices that we're using in this process that really fight against, quite frankly, sort of the way our country as a capitalist society operates. And so really what I'm, I'm, I'm doing is trying to, to bring a, a different orientation to the way we do hiring and searches. And to me, that feels like a response to a DEI approach. Okay, so this is really interesting, this concept of a white supremacist culture and decolonizing hiring practices, if you will. Mm-hmm. What does that look like? Because, you know, what I've heard amongst in my travels is, you know, one of the best practices in order to ensure that we are taking out as much implicit bias as possible is to create, you know, very clear questions that every candidate gets and creating rubrics around you know, the different interview stages and so forth. And I'm just wondering, does it fly in the face of what you would characterize as undoing white supremacist practices? I think so. I think one of the things that I've had to do in thinking about a different way of hiring is to think about how we have, and I think it's because of one, I'll just say I've been in my leadership practice have been hiring largely in higher education institutions, and in some cases, some nonprofits, higher education institutions are nonprofits. And I, so I think theoretically, and I think you, you hear that in the way I talk about hiring in this way, and it sounds a bit abstract, but to bring it, to give a couple examples, one thing, so when I'm referencing this white supremacy culture and the habits of white supremacy, it comes from the work of Tema Okun. And so I want to be able to name that scholar and a person and the folks who have led to that document. And I can give you for your show notes a link to, to the listing of these habits. And one of them is perfectionism. I have known search committees to throw out candidates because there's mistakes in the spellings and cover letters and resumes. I think if there's a quality and substance in the application, I will overlook that perfectionism and overlook those mistakes. I I do note it, but I do think if there's something in the way they're articulating, framing that's exciting, I won't let perfectionism get in the way. The sense of urgency is another sort of habit in this construct. Like I mentioned before, I understand we need to get some folks in the seat, but I also believe that very much I'll, I'll have a far better outcome in the work ultimately that we do if we are not rushing a process. And so a sense of urgency is something I try and push back on as well. And one of the things that I have also tried to think about in hiring is the either or thinking, which is another, the sort of binary thinking that can happen in search processes, particularly in the deliberation that this person either has this or has that. This is right or this is wrong, but what does it look like to tend to the complexities of candidates that offer lots of different things and to really sit in that gray space. And perhaps they might not have the exact education credential, but look at all these other things. So that is another habit that I try and challenge is that binary thinking, that either or thinking, and really thinking about how to how to grapple with the complex lives of the individuals and the candidates. 
Yeah, I would also add to that. I I think we also get very hung up on the brand names of certain schools and the assumption of because you went to a certain kind of school, Ivy, what have you, it means that somehow you are a superior intellectual type person. And I I think really questioning our assumptions around that is is pretty critical. So I have a question for you, because this is actually something that's happened to me which is, you know, we'll go through a process and at the end we'll have a few candidates and we'll sort of just feel like "Mm, we're not really excited about any of them. And the question that I have for you is, do you have any rules of thumb around whether or not the indication is is that the job is like not realistic and that nobody is ever going to be a good candidate versus we just haven't done a good job of sourcing and recruiting and that there weren't the right people in the pipeline. Like, does the question make sense? Like, how do you know the difference? You know, it's so specific to each search. I remember in the fall of 2017, I was working on a hire of about five new program coordinators all to join a team all at the same time. And there was one role that we just could not, we could not seem to hire for. And we asked ourselves that exact question. Is it the candidate pool or is it the way we frame the job? And so what we did was we took a pause. We went back to the candidate pool and we took a pause. We, we looked at the job in that pause. We, we looked at the job description again. We looked at the reality of the work ahead the other candidates we had begun to make offers to who were filling out the other. So we had the benefit of having a a sort of a cohort of folks coming in. So we could then turn and make a strategic decision to go back to the candidate pool and, and identify folks who may not have made it through that first round that we went in to select folks to come in for interviews. But because we had an opportunity to rethink the job slightly, to change it. We actually did change the job description. We then asked folks who had been, had applied to other, the other program coordinator jobs, would you be interested in this role as it is framed now? We, we, and some of them said, oh, I looked at that, but because I didn't have X, Y, or Z, what happened was we had, we had done the thing where we said they need this master's degree, they need this many things, but guess what? Our salary was not competitive in, enough for folks with that set of credentials. So we said, actually, that's either a program manager role and we're going to elevate it to program manager instead of program coordinator and source it. Unfortunately, we didn't have the budget. So we took the, a, a different approach and said, we're going to keep it program coordinator. It will continue with the salary line, but we're going to change the scope the nature, and we're going to get some additional supports. We're going to make sure that they have professional development. We hired a consulting team of individuals to help support those folks in learning the domain, what we call the domain tasks of the work, which would be the subject matter, right? In this case, it was college access. And so we're able to send them to the Goddard Center to get training. We're able to form a team of consultants who had been college prep and access advisors in and out of schools to support and sort of be a team to support that that coordinator and the other one we hired and we found terrific staff who we we considered for the other program coordinator roles but they didn't rise right to the finalist stage for that but they turned out to be terrific in this modified version because we decided to ask ourselves critically make some choices and say hey the way we framed it this first go around did not work let's reframe it let's invite folks who 
were, who demonstrated a commitment to our mission, were excited, were passionate, were willing to rewrite, re-articulate. Re we didn't ask them to rewrite a job description, a cover letter, I mean, but we asked them to re-articulate in some words why they think they could transfer their skills to this particular job and, and held another interview round. It slowed our process. It delayed the timeline. But again, I pushed back on that sense of urgency because I was trying to build the right team and bring in a cohort that could come work together. And I'm very excited to say that four of the five remain at the organization. And this was almost two years ago. And they're all women of color. Oh, that's wonderful. So last question, and it's really a retention question. So I think it's one thing to source candidates of from diverse backgrounds. It's another thing to, you know, hire them, make sure that they're going to the pipeline. And it's another thing to retain them. And, you know, I'll just say from my own mistakes, of which I've made many, that I think one of the things that I didn't do well was recognizing the amount of support necessary to help folks transition into, you know, their first jobs, particularly, you know, entry-level folks who were in their first role post-college and actually, this is sort of across the board, you know, regardless of racial background, it was like I underestimated how much support they needed to become professionals, doubly more so when I was dealing with a lot of my first gen folks who didn't have that professional sort of knowledge base from their families or whatever about what it's supposed to be like to be in a professional environment. So I'm just wondering if you could speak a little bit to some of the supports that you have found to be helpful in helping folks transition into the professional world. And at what point, you know, because we're nonprofits and because we're understaffed and because we don't have a ton of time and extra effort, uh, extra capacity to coach people as much as we would perhaps like to, like at what point is it not feasible to do? Does that question make sense? Yeah, it's such a great question. It makes me think of a few things. So one I talked about this moments ago about professional development, really carefully looking at the budget and making a decision and quite frankly, a commitment to have my staff have some amount of money. Most times it was about 1500 a year, which is quite generous for at least for nonprofits with lean budgets and the budgets I was working with for conference attendance, books, sessions. I've sent staff to the management center trainings. I've sent staff to the support center here uh, for nonprofits in New York City. And so really working with them on what their professional goals are, making sure that's a part of the onboarding process, midpoint check-ins, end of year check-ins, and, and really being deliberate about and insistent that they make the time and the space for professional development. In the case, I was overseeing a social worker, making sure that she was getting the CEUs, I believe that's called in her field, necessary each year, and making sure that she was connecting with folks in her community and attending association meetings to develop and bolster herself as what we were beginning to frame as a radical social workers network. And so that was one thing that I did. I think another form of professional development is giving your staff an opportunity to shine at meetings, to lead an agenda item, to provide the report out, inviting them to a board meeting to speak and to talk about our program participants and what's happening, really helping them help by me learning what they do well at and providing them opportunities to do that. So if they're great with communications and media, having them really own that for uh, the work that we do 
sharing the spotlight to me has been one of the greatest joys and really seeing my staff open up and step up to that opportunity. Secondly, I'd say sponsorship and mentorship are also crucial roles. If I can, if I end up playing the role as mentor or sponsor, that's something that I definitely do. I know that particularly for my entry-level roles, that I may only have this staff person for a year, two, at best, hopefully three or four, but I know that their time is limited. And so what I always tell them, and it's usually within the first week or month of working together, I know you won't be here long. My job is to help you sharpen your skills, give you the work that will give you the the opportunity and the leverage to get to where you're going next. And so in knowing that, I think about how I'm setting folks up for success in their work and and providing them with the skills and opportunities to, to bolster their resume, particularly those who are first in their work. And lastly, I'd say the third, the third thing I'd say that I do is what I call real talk. Maybe this is the Southern girl in me, but I think particularly for first-gen folks to professional work, uh, first-gen college grads, really making sure I I talk about, okay, I'm going to take off my director hat, or this is a moment where you're getting real talk with Judy, and this is the moment where I can get real with them and one-on-one with them about, well, I'm clear that I'm not their best friend. We're not social media friends. I I think I, I value very much a clear line of of uh, boundaries around work and professional life, but I am someone who is willing to share my own lived experiences as a professional moving through and giving folks 15 minutes, 30 minutes of my time, open door. I'm here to support my staff as they're trying to navigate and figure out. And also being willing to listen to the criticism, the critique of leadership, of the ways the organization is functioning and not being defensive and, and listening and take that in and making a notation to figure out and huddle with the folks they need to, to to respond to staff needs. It's the messiness of working with people. And it's, it's really about building relationships, even at, at within, within your team and making space and time to do that. However, that shows up at the water cooler in your office or at an event, but really staying open has been the way that I feel like I've been able to retain my staff and showing compassion and firmness and holding the line around completion and, and, and doing work to the fullest, I feel like has been the, the enabling conditions that I've created at work that I feel like I can get the best out of my team. Well, Judy, that's all the time we have for now. I really appreciate your time and your wisdom, and we'll make sure to link to your information and some of the resources that you mentioned in the show notes, but I'd love to have you back at some point. We can talk more about this. It's a very, very interesting topic. Wonderful. Thank you, Rio. Pleasure. Thank you, Judy. Have a good weekend. Bye.